0: So, Mark chapter one, verses one to 15. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made out of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey and this was his message after me will come one more powerful than I the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee And was baptized by John in the Jordan as Jesus was coming up out of the water he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending down on him like a dove and the voice came from heaven you are my son whom I love with you I am well pleased at once the Spirit sent him into the desert and he was in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The news of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Father, we do
1: thank you for your word. And we uh, pray that as your word is heard and taught here and also in the uh, Sunday school, that uh, we would each be growing in our knowledge of who Jesus is and why he came. Uh, Father, that we would put our trust in him and live lives of greater obedience and service to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I I think it's true to say that uh, at around Christmas time that there is more opportunity to talk to people about Jesus than other times of the year it's it's hard to say sometimes because there's a lot of Christmas carols about and does that actually though mean that people are talking about Jesus I know that uh, the 1600 kids that we teach every week in scripture classes have been taught about Jesus's birth this week and uh, they're likely to go home to mum and dad and say hey you know we learned about Jesus and how he was born in a manger and so on. And so at the very least you'd have to say that there is uh, a greater uh, awareness, a greater opportunity to talk about Jesus in the few weeks leading up to Christmas. Now, the the problem though is people might think about Jesus or talk about Jesus, but who do they think that Jesus actually is? For a lot of people, I'm sure that uh, they're uh, caricature of jesus is just that of a little baby lying in a manger in the hay and the cattle mooing and the you know the sh- the sheep bleating and all that sort of stuff so um, some people though do go think a bit more deeply about jesus and uh, they will say that jesus uh, very clearly was a a great uh, teacher preacher who trod the the dirt roads of uh, of galilee and judea uh, and whose teaching has changed the culture and changed our society for forever for the last 2,000 years. Some people would go a step further than that. Uh, I know Muslims, for example, uh, they say that well, Jesus is more than just a teacher, preacher. Jesus, they would say that Jesus is a prophet. And I think it was earlier this year, it might have been late last year, that uh, the uh, Muslims in uh, Australia, in Sydney. Uh, did a big promotional campaign and uh, they put up uh, big billboards on major arterial roads around Sydney Uh, and there's a photograph of that in the bulletin there for you in your sermon outline uh, saying Jesus, a prophet of Islam. So what are they saying about Jesus? They're saying, well he's more than just a great teacher they're saying that he's actually a prophet, uh, which is uh, something uh, at least more connected with God. But is that all that Jesus is? I wonder who your friends, your non-Christian friends, would say that Jesus is. What would they think about Jesus? Now, of course, the best way for anyone to learn about the true Jesus is to uh, is to read. Uh, the accounts of Jesus's life uh, that are recorded for us in the Gospels, and that's exactly what we're going to be doing over the next couple of months or so, as we take a look at uh, the Gospel of Mark. Now, it seems that every couple of years or so, usually around Easter or Christmas time, that uh, someone publishes a new book where they say that they've dis- they've made fresh discoveries about Jesus. Uh, where they say that what's necessary is that we uh, strip back, that we peel back all of the mythology about Jesus that's built up over the centuries and we, we get to the, the, the core, we get to the, the real, authentic, historical Jesus and uh, usually they say that uh, they've discovered the, the authentic Jesus and uh, they'll say things like, well, Jesus actually... I don't know if you've heard this or not, but uh, uh, Jesus got married, and that he married Mary Magdalene, and they had a few kids together, started a family, and he didn't really die on a cross, but he lived to a ripe old age, and uh, and this is the true, this is the this is the demythologised Jesus, the authentic, the true Jesus, and of course, what they normally have to say is that. Um, uh, well, that the reason why the authentic Jesus is different from the Jesus that you read about in the Gospels is because, well, you can't actually believe the Gospels. Um, and and they'll, they'll often say that uh, the reason for that is that the, the Gospels, well, they were just written a long time after Jesus. And over the last couple of centuries, a uh, couple of thousand years, rather, that uh, it's been added to, it's been changed so that what you have in your Bibles, that's that's, a lot of mythology there and you've got to strip it back to the true, authentic, historical Jesus. Well, friends, Mark's Gospel was written uh, about 30 to 35 years after the death of Jesus. Uh, The earliest... uh, Parts of manuscripts that we've got of Mark's gospel, um, through carbon dating and so on, we can uh, see that they are in fact written, that Mark's gospel was written very, very soon uh, in terms of world history, very soon after the death of Jesus, within 30 to 35 years. And what that meant is that when Mark's gospel was written, that there were people who had personally known Jesus were still still around and that they could verify uh, what was being said about Jesus. Uh, This gospel was written by Mark John. Uh, Mark John, uh, we know, spent a lot of time with the apostles Peter and uh, and Paul. Uh, He was the cousin of Barnabas. Uh, you might remember that, um, that there was a, um, you know, a bit of a dispute between Barnabas and Paul at one stage about Mark because he, he had acted a little bit immaturely and hadn't stuck it out you know, on an evangelistic mission, but things got sorted out in the end. Uh, and it's Mark John. Uh, Mark, by the way, is, the, is his Latin name. Uh, John is his, his Hebrew name. Um, And he's written for us this account. If you open up your Bibles at Mark 1, uh, what he does in the very opening sentence is that he reveals to us the answer to the great mystery about who Jesus actually is. Have a look at verse 1. He says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, Now, the term gospel means good news or glad tidings. Uh, It's a normal secular term in the first century. uh, uh, When a uh, military leader would uh, conquer his enemy, they would send the gospel back to the folks at home, the good news about what's happened and so on. But here, it is the gospel or the good news about Jesus. Now, notice that he says the beginning of the gospel. Uh, He's not saying this is the beginning of my book uh, because when he wrote it, his book would not have been referred to as a gospel. It uh, became referred to as a gospel after it had been written. But uh, what he's saying is that um, what he's... You see, he's writing to people who have heard the gospel and have believed the gospel as the gospel was spoken by word of mouth and as it spread uh, throughout the Greco-Roman world of the first century. And what he's saying is that this gospel that you've believed, this gospel that's spread throughout the world, what I'm about to tell you is the beginnings of that gospel, uh, how the gospel came about in the first place. And he's talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Now, how does he describe Jesus? Well, he uses two titles. First of all, he calls him Jesus Christ. Now, uh, Christ is not a surname. Um, it's not like, who can I pick on? It's not like Tim Grittenbore, uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, it's, the, the word Christ uh, is, a, is a Greek word and it means anointed one. Uh, The Hebrew equivalent of it is the word, can anyone tell me? Messiah, Messiah, Messiah Christ means anointed one. Now, in Israel, when a king was made a king, the way that would happen would be that a a priest or a prophet would would anoint uh, that person's head with oil. It's where we get the word ointment from, by the way. Um, it was uh, they were anointed with oil, and uh, you remember, for example, uh, Saul. Uh, when Samuel made him king, that's exactly what he did, isn't it? He he anointed uh, Saul as king. Uh, when he, when David became king, it was because Samuel anointed David as king. He poured oil on his head, and uh, the word anointed uh, is the word Messiah or Christ. Now, uh, it took quite a while for the disciples to figure out who Jesus actually, uh, actually is. Uh, in fact, uh, we're going to have to wait until we get to Mark chapter 8 um, before the, 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 the disciples figured it out. Remember in Mark 8, there's that scene where, uh, where Jesus says to the disciples, who do the people say that I am? And uh, they say, well, some say that you're such and such and some say that you're so and so. And then he says to Peter, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, oh, I get it. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you've got to wait till chapter 8 before the, the, uh, the penny drop for the disciples. Um, but here, Mark puts it out there for us in the very opening sentence. So that as we're reading through the gospel, we've got that we're reading the gospel with that framework in mind, that Jesus is the Lord's anointed one. Jesus is the Christ; he is the King. But notice that it also says, "Jesus Christ, the Son of God." Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? I think as Christians, we um, Uh, We often talk about Jesus being God the Son and we use that terminology because we're referring to the deity of Jesus. We're saying that Jesus is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is God the Son. But to say the Son of God is actually different to saying God the Son. Um, In the Old Testament, The son of God was a king, like the anointed one, like the Messiah, the Christ. But he wasn't just any king. He was God's king. He was the one who ruled over the people of God. Mark doesn't beat about the bush here. People these days say that Jesus is that cute baby in the manger or he's a great teacher, or he's you know, a prophet of Islam, or whatever. But Mark says, no, 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 no. Now, Jesus is the king. Jesus is God's king. And what that means is that Jesus is actually the king of kings. That he is the ruler of the entire, that all authority belongs to him. He is the king of kings. Now, The Jews had expected God's king to come for a long time. Um, The Old Testament had prophesied about the coming of God's king. And it's interesting that the coming of God's king meant that there would be preparation that would be done for that coming. Uh, You know, when um, Queen Elizabeth travels about the place, Uh, They always do preparation for her, don't they? They always clean up the city streets and make sure everything's nice and spick and span and to be impressive. Cassie and I used to work in a church in Redfern in Sydney many, many years ago. I don't know if you know Redfern or not, but uh, one of the big things about Redfern is they've got these massive skyscraper-ish type of public housing developments you seen those at all? Uh, you know when they first built those, I think in the probably in the late 60s, early 70s, they considered them to be state of the art in public housing. I'd want to say this state of the art in public slums um, the way that you know you know terrible places actually. Um, but state of the art at the time and uh, when they opened them, they moved everyone into the, their into their flats and uh, then they had the official opening and Queen Elizabeth was invited. Uh, queen Elizabeth opened the public housing estate in Redfern. And when Cassie and I were working in the church down there, they still remembered it. They still told the story about the day that the Queen came and uh, how the government um, had, had selected one elderly resident a pensioner and uh, said to her that queen elizabeth would be coming to her place for a cup of tea how would you like that eh would you do some preparation would you do the vacuuming would you polish up the silver and bring out the china Well, the government did better than that. Uh, The the day before the Queen had a cup of tea at this lady's place, a big Grace Brothers removalist truck pulled up. (laughs) A couple of workers got out and they pulled all of her furniture out of the flat, put it in the truck (laughs) and they replaced it all with beautiful brand new stuff from Grace Brothers. And the lady was tickled pink over that. She thought it was... She wasn't sure whether the coming of the Queen or the new furniture was the height. As soon as the Queen left, they took it all away, brought back all of her old lounge and all of her dining, and so on. You know, the point is that you prepare for the coming of royalty and uh, I don't want to trivialise this, um, far from it, but the Old Testament spoke very clearly of the preparation that would, would happen before the arrival of God's Christ. God's anointed, the son of God. And when God's king arrived, someone else would prepare the way. Have a look at verses 2 and 3. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So, he says that Isaiah the prophet has, has uh, declared this. Actually, he gives then two quotes. Uh, one is from Isaiah the prophet, but, and that's the second section there, but the first section is in fact a quote from the prophet Malachi. Now, Mark, it's not as if Mark made a mistake that he got Malachi confused with Isaiah. Uh, it was common practice for the rabbis to uh, sometimes to take uh, prophecies from different prophets and uh, draw them together in common sayings in order to express the main point being made by one of those prophets and uh, here Mark is saying that the great promises that are made at the back end the second half of the prophet Isaiah have been fulfilled and they have been fulfilled in what I am about to tell you. Now, Isaiah was written 750 to 800 years um, before Jesus and it was written uh, before and around the time when God's people, the Jews, were marched out of Jerusalem, out of the promised land, away from the temple that had been destroyed. They were marched out of the land, across the desert, uh, into exile, in Babylon it was the great catastrophe in Israel's history but it was purposed by God to spiritually purify his people to take away from them everything that they were putting their trust in the land the temple the priesthood all of those things that they were trusting in when they should have actually been putting their trust in the Lord God and so he took those things away from them sent them into exile in order to purify their hearts that they might long after him as they did. And through Isaiah, God promised that one day that exile would end, that one day that they would trek back across the desert and back into the promised land. Let's let's have a look at that, shall we? Um, Can you come with me to Isaiah chapter 40 for a moment? Um, Now, you find that uh, in your pew Bibles on about page 511. Actually, Christmas time, I love some of the prophecies that are in Isaiah um, that speak so clearly of the coming of God's king. And uh, a lot of them are picked up in Handel's Messiah. I don't know if you're familiar with Handel's Messiah. This is one of them that uh, I'm not going to sing it for you. But uh, Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1, everyone got that? Okay. Uh, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. That's the exile. That her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins, a voice of one calling in the desert prepare the way for the lord make straight in the wilderness a highway for our god every valley shall be raised up every mountain and hill made low the rough ground shall become level the rugged places a plain and the glory of the lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it for the voice the mouth of the lord has spoken now at one level this prophecy in isaiah is fulfilled when the Jews returned back across the desert uh, to Jerusalem. But why then would Mark be, be quoting it in Mark chapter 1? By quoting it in Mark chapter 1 what Mark is saying is that although they are back in the land physically, that spiritually they're still in exile. Spiritually they're still cut off from God. Spiritually, they are still in their sins. Spiritually, they still need to be saved. But God would send a voice in the desert who would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. So first, in Isaiah 40, first would come the voice and then would come the Lord. Now, the prophet Malachi is also quoted by Mark in the first section of that quotation. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Uh, the prophet Malachi, uh, he is actually chronological uh, in terms of the way that the Bible's laid out, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And Malachi spoke about the coming of the great day of the Lord. But before God comes... Malachi says that a messenger would prepare the way. and that messenger in Malachi chapter 4 is described as being Elijah. And you think to yourself, well hang on a moment, Elijah he was way back there in one and two kings. Remember Elijah um, great prophet lived in the desert and uh, uh, you know the, 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 the story I like from Elijah's life of course is the uh, Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Remember that? That's the guy we're talking about here, Elijah, the, the great prophet. Um, and um, and so what, what it's saying here, in, what it's saying in Malachi, is that before God comes, Elijah would come. And you think to yourself, well, who is this Elijah? Who is this? This new Elijah. Well, back in Mark chapter 1, in verses 4 through to 8, Mark introduces us to John, the cousin of Jesus. And he too, like Elijah, lived in the desert. How did he dress? Well, um, we're told there there, there that he, he wore clothing that was made of camel's hair. I don't imagine that would be terribly comfortable. Uh, and that he wore a leather belt around his waist. It's interesting because in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, when it's describing Elijah, he says, it says that he wore hairy clothes and he wore a belt around his waist. It's the same description that you hear, have here of John the Baptist. And Jesus later on says that John uh, is the Elijah figure. Um, in verse 5, All the people of Judea and Jerusalem came out. Um, Jerusalem, the centre of of Israel's religious worship. Uh, Judea, the the more spiritual part of uh, of, uh, Palestine, because Galilee was known as Galilee of the Gentiles, but all people from Judea and Jerusalem come out and they go back, they go into the desert into the desert, and there they are washed by John in the Jordan River. You see, I said that they were washed. Um, The passage actually says they were baptised, doesn't it? That's because to be baptised means to be washed. Um, I understand, I was talking to Mark the other day. Where's Mark? Is he around or is he in the crash room? He's not here, I can speak freely. Um see Mark was telling me that if you if you go you went Lauren can confirm this so you went to the Jordan River did you feel very much at home at the Jordan River yeah what, what what made you feel so much at home in the Jordan River you better come up the front here Lauren and and tell people this okay okay we got some uh power on that all right so You you felt at home at the Jordan River. Why did you feel so at home at the Jordan River?
0: Um, We were very surprised that it looked quite like the Murray River. There are all these gum trees lining the Jordan River. All these, and it's quite dirty-looking water.
1: So so it's it's filthy, dirty. Yeah. And it's got gum trees, so therefore it's like the Murray River. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just no
0: paddle steamers. Any
1: koalas (laughs) there? Uh,
0: Didn't see a koala.
1: No, no koalas there.
0: The only difference would be the water's freezing cold.
1: Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. Now, I understand but um, gum trees are native Australian trees, aren't they? Yes, they are. So how come you got gum trees over there in the um, Jordan River? From
0: memory, that whole area was damaged quite a lot and it was all from conflict, I guess. Yep. It was all left quite bare. The countryside looked quite poor. So, um, part of the regeneration was the Australian Government said sent over some seedlings of gum trees to try and make the countryside look nice again. Thanks, Lauren.
1: There you go. And uh, a round of applause for Lauren, please. Yeah. Uh, there's, uh, you can even backtrack it um, uh, earlier than that because in the 1880s, apparently they had a malaria problem in the swamps around the Jordan River and they needed to drain the uh, swamps, and they planted these Australian gum trees to suck up all of the water which uh, dried up the swamps as well. So you might feel very much at home there, but you probably wouldn't dive in for a wash. Is that what I heard you saying? Because it's kind of filthy dirty these days. But you know what? When the people came to John to be baptised, to be washed, it wasn't dirt off their skin. That they needed to be washed free of. Have a look at verse four. What was it that they needed to be um, to have washed in verse four? It says, "As so as John came baptising in the desert region and preaching a baptism of rep- repentance for thee." What is it? For the forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness of sins. What did they need to have washed away? It wasn't dirt off their skin. It was sin from their hearts. That's the washing that was needed. Now, could John do that simply by dunking people underwater? No. No way. Um, That was a symbol. He was preparing the way for someone else who would come. Because what did he preach? What was his message in verse 7? In verse 7, this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than i the thongs of whose sandals i am not worthy to stoop down and untie now the thongs of the sandals that you could translate as the straps of a sand, someone's sandals all right because we Aussies use the term thongs everyone else in the world calls them flip-flops i think so but it's the straps he's saying that to un- untie the straps from someone's sandals was about the most lowly Um, dirty, filthy job um, that uh, you could do for someone. Uh, It was usually reserved for the lowest of servants. John says that this one who comes after me, he is so holy that I'm not even worthy to do that lowly job. I'm not worthy to touch his feet. Why? Verse 8. In verse 8, I baptise you with water but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the difference between baptised with water and being baptised with the Holy Spirit? Um, There is a bit of confusion about about that these days. There are some people who think that, uh, you know, if you're baptised in water, that somehow that makes you a Christian. You know, I've had people say that, you know, they're getting a bit sick, they thought they might be dying, better get baptised so they'll be... Insurance policy, all right. But can being baptized with water wash away your sins? Other people think that to be baptised in the Holy Spirit means to speak in tongues. Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? That means do you speak in tongues? But to be baptized in the Spirit means to be washed from within to be cleansed of the guilt and the putridness of sin, to be made as white as snow. The very washing of which water baptism is but a symbol. So, have a look at verse 9. Because in verse 9, if baptism represents the washing away of sin, why did Jesus come? to be baptized. It's interesting isn't it that Mark points out that all of Judea and everyone from Jerusalem came out to be baptized in the in the desert but there's only one person from Galilee of the Gentiles who comes to be baptized. And that's Jesus. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? I mean, Jesus never sinned. Uh, you see that in verse 12, which I'd like to do, a, we don't have time to get into more detail on, but in verse 12 uh, we're told that Jesus, after his baptism, was sent out uh, by the Spirit into the desert where for 40 days he was tempted. And there's a parallel there between uh, Israel being in the, in the desert for 40 years where they fell to temptation, uh, but Jesus, we know, resisted temptation. And yet, uh, he is the one here being baptised. Why was Jesus baptised? Well, Jesus, through his baptism, identified himself with Israel. He identified himself with fallen humanity. He identified himself with people like you and me. He himself had no sin. And yet three years later he stood in our place. Three years later he stood, or rather he hung as our substitute, perfectly God, perfectly man, hanging and dying on a cross. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter five verse 21, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Washed, sanctified, justified is what Paul says elsewhere. The guilt of our sin washed clean away by the costly blood of Jesus. So Jesus was baptised. And then in verse 10, as he rose up out of the water, um, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And get this, a voice came from heaven. Who do you think that might be? God the Father. A voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. You are my son. It's saying something more than just that there's a fatherly son relationship. For example, like there is between us and God, that we are his, he's our father, we are his sons and daughters. God himself here is quoting something which God had earlier said in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a magnificent psalm it's a psalm which talks about the, the kings and the rulers of the world getting together and conspiring against the Lord and against his anointed one. Um, and, uh, but, God, but God laughs at that. He scoffs at their attempts. And he says, actually, I have set my king, my anointed one, on Zion, my holy hill. And I have said to him, you are my son. Today I've become your father. And he says, and all of the nations of the world will be his inheritance. And so guess what, you kings of the earth, you rulers, those of you who are in authority, those who think that you're powerful, uh, you better actually obey my son. Because he's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. Kiss the son, lest his anger flare up against you. And the psalm finishes with this beautiful, uh, beautiful verse that says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I guess that's the bottom line, isn't it? Have you taken your refuge in Jesus? Have you trusted that he indeed has washed away the guilt of your sin through his death on the cross? Have you been baptised in the spirit? Have you been cleansed from the inside out by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, this Christmas, I wonder if you will have a chance to talk to people a little bit more about Jesus. Hey, if you think, no, that's probably not going to happen, then why not actually pray about that and ask God to open up Doors of opportunity to uh, share with people a little bit about Jesus. Because I think we've got to think through how do we get people to think differently about Jesus? How do we get people to think outside of that caricature of Jesus being the little, sweet, cute, cuddly baby in the manger or just a great religious teacher or even a prophet? How do we get people to think differently, more scripturally, about the true Jesus? Um, when, those, when the Muslims put up those signs around Sydney saying Jesus is a prophet of Islam, I read in the paper there was, they interviewed some church hierarchy kind of guy, a bishop sort of fellow, and he said, well, I'm outraged. He said, I think it's, I think it's dreadful, it's terrible what they've done, it's, it's insulting you know, that they should say that. And I thought, I wonder how helpful that is. Uh, then I came across a more helpful response. You know the posters we put outside the church on the sign out there on uh, uh, William Street. The people who put those posters together, they they decided to put billboards on the other side of the road. And I've put a photograph of it there for you in your uh, in your in your outlines, which. And their billboard said, Dear Aussie, Aussie Muslims, we're glad that you want to talk about Jesus. We'd love to have a, a bit more, we'd love to chat some more about Jesus. Open up the dialogue about Jesus. Get people t- talking about Jesus. Actually look at what Mark's Gospel says about Jesus. We need to do whatever we can to encourage people to take a look at the real Jesus. So here's a thought, just in closing, it might be helpful to you, it may not be, I don't know. Uh, you give out, you send out Christmas cards, right, around this time. Uh, you put together little Christmas package, present packages for people that you love. you Ever thought about just slipping a little gospel tract into those cards or into those Christmas presents, um, or even slipping a, a, a copy of one of the Gospels? in amongst the Christmas presents. Um, my brother's not a Christian. Um, uh, he's a... Um, the big thing in his life is surfing. And uh, we've got a pretty good relationship. And he'll say to me, Scott... Um, and he has said to me, he said to me, Scott, um, you know, you're into God and all of that sort of thing. I'm into surfing and all of that sort of thing. He said, it's not likely that I'm going to cross the fence into your backyard... But he said, we can have a chat over the fence about God and religion if you like. So I thought, that's fair enough. That's the kind of thing. So the Bible Society um, produces a Bible called the Surfer's Bible. So it's got pictures of surfing and it's got testimonies from Christian surfers and I slipped one of those in his Christmas present a year or two ago. Does it do any harm to do that? No, of course not. Uh, Can it do any good? Absolutely. Now... Uh, The table at the front here, we've got a whole stack of tracts. Why not grab a few on your way out today? Why not then pray about who you might want to give that to at Christmas time? Can't do any harm, but it may actually help someone you know, someone you love, to think more about who the true Jesus actually is. Look, let's pray about all of this, shall we? Father, we do thank you for uh, Mark's account of Jesus. Uh, We thank you, Father God, that uh, uh, he is your king, uh, that he is the ruler of all rulers, and we thank you that uh, he paid that costly sacrifice by dying on the cross so that we can be baptised, we can be washed of all our sin through his shed blood. Father, we pray for ourselves that we would indeed be trusting in Jesus and for any of us here who haven't taken that step as yet, Lord God, we pray that you would just work in our hearts. And Father, we ask that you would give us opportunity over the next few weeks, uh, indeed well beyond that, to uh, talk to others about Jesus, that they too might have their sins washed clean away. We ask these things in his name. Amen.